Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ark Russell. I'm Liz Manischel. This week we welcome producer Avril Speaks on the show to talk about producing her latest film and how she went from teaching to filmmaking. But before we get to Avril... We have mail. My breath catches in my chest and so I hear three little words. You got mail. All right, there's a new comment on YouTube. Which, um, from our episode where we talked about Red Snow, it's featuring Sean Lynch and Gavin Murray. And the comment comes from longtime listener Elfenshot Films, and they said, Excellent. Thank you, Elfenshot. <laughs> it's like the lead up to the comment was longer than like three times the comment. But Elfenshot, we still appreciate your excellent comment. So thank you. I can't remember what his actual name is. I know this person is not just a production company, they're, they're a real person. <laughs> but, and I've talked to them, and I don't remember. And I looked, I tried to look it up, my email, I couldn't find it. I'm sorry, um, but we love you. Thank you. I love how often we admit our, our mistakes on this podcast. It's actually, <laughs> I enjoy it. Um, we also have a listener question that came like an hour ago. So we're just throwing it into this conversation, right? Yes. So it's from Jeanette Bloom. And Jeanette writes, hi, Liz and Ulrich. I'm a new listener to your podcast. I absolutely love it. I said this in an iTunes review already, but you guys have seriously changed my outlook on life, which probably sounds overdramatic, but my life is making films, so it fits, I guess. Side comments. It's not overdramatic. We want to, we enjoy that you said that. Thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, back to, back to note. I had a question that maybe you guys could answer on the show if you feel like other people would benefit from it. And sorry if this has been addressed in another episode. I am still catching up. I'm thinking about hiring a publicist for the film festival stage of my film. I'm wondering if you could talk about any experience you've had working with a publicist. And then my more specific question is, do you think having one can actually help you get into better festivals? Like, would they promote you to the festival when you're submitting to help highlight your submission? Or is that not a thing? In the same vein, I'm wondering, do you guys reach out to programmers or do you just submit blindly and leave it at that? I've heard some people say you should reach out, but I feel annoying. Maybe I want to hire someone to do it for me but maybe that's not done. Thank you so much, Jeanette. Ulrich, I have thoughts, but I know you have thoughts as well. Share your thoughts. But you're this film festival distribution expert person, <laughs> so I think thoughts. you should start first. Okay, so hiring a publicist is wonderful. I would only do it if you get into a festival that really will amplify your career in your film. So if you get into a South By or a Tribeca, I would encourage you to hire a publicist if you have the budget. Uh, they do not traditionally promote you to additional festivals. But good news, Jeanette, there are people called festival lobbyists that you can hire. I actually work for the Film Collaborative and we have a festival distribution arm where they do that. They recommend films to various festivals and they help uh, get your film out there, and they also negotiate screening fees. So there are actually specialists who do this for you. It's not your publicist. Um, and I would, finally, I would, yes, I would encourage you to reach out to programmers. They don't normally, I've heard, really read the uh, cover letters that you send via Film Freeway or what used to be sent through without a box. But if you have a connection and you could write a short, respectful letter that shows that you understand their festival and you bring value to them 
uh, then I would encourage you to do that and but don't be a pest and don't contact them too much oh fast talking because I know we're running out of time Ulrich what do you think yeah no that sounds great I want to hear more about these film festival lobbyists how does this work you pay somebody to um, you know to su submit your film for you or like help you get to a film festival how does that work they uh, yes I mean there's there's also, by the way, like representation could be a part of this. Representation of the actors can be a part of this. It's not like a formal service. Like you could probably Google it, but it's usually a lot of independent contractors outside of the film collaborative. And I have a list of people who do this. So I could send this to you, Ulrich, and anyone who emails me to ask. But yes, they, A, they understand the market and they watch your film and they recommend what festivals submit to. They may be able to negotiate waivers for you so you don't have to pay fees to submit. And then they know the programmers so they can, again, lobby and promote your title directly to the programmers instead of um, you just kind of waiting and being part of the mass influx of films that they are blindly watching. So who, I mean, no one's ever really tracked the data of like if this meaningfully helps you know your film has to be great it has to be a good fit for the festival but it is a means of support you can hire to get your film out into the world and have you done this before I did I for speed of life I worked with Leslie Vuchot but I couldn't afford her full fee so I just had her talk to me for like an hour about the type of festivals I should submit to and um that was really meaningful, you know, like I didn't know that Philadelphia Film Festival was a really good festival. I had no idea. I didn't know that certain programmers go from one film festival to another film festival um, and that if you get programmed at one, you get might get recommended at another. Or I didn't know that Richard Brody covers Maryland Film Festival. Like there's all these things that you learn from working with an expert. Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Well, I guess what I have to say about this is we've been doing this recently. Me and my producer have been submitting the alternate to film festivals, and he um, has connections at a bunch of them. So sometimes he'll just email the programmer or the person he knows directly and then, you know, either ask for a waiver or always ask for a waiver. And sometimes he won't get one, but then we'll submit anyways. And then, like, we're kind of in this email chain with some of these, these programmers. And so that's kind of helpful and nice and had a – interchange with the CineQuest programmer um, the other day about wanting to see some visual effects for my movie that weren't in the the cut. So I don't know, we're still in the running for that one, I guess. But yeah, I would say reaching out to programmers seems like a good idea. And you know what, what Jeff said, my producer was like, if we don't know them, just find the email um, that you can from Film Freewood or whatever, and just send them an email, um, you know, before or before you submit usually just asking for a waiver and then telling them about your movie, you know, maybe it's not good to ask for a waiver. Maybe it's better just to like tell them about your movie and like say you're excited to submit and then just submit it rather than begging as the first thing that you introduce yourself to them as, you know, I don't know. What do you think, Liz? I mean, it depends. I think that, you know, I'm friends with a few film festival, like heads of film festivals on Twitter and they'll make these kind of comments about how they're suffering economically and how they're getting frustrated by filmmakers reaching out for waivers. So I would say if it's a smaller festival that probably is having uh, going through some tough times right now, you know, navigate those waters a little bit more carefully than you would. But if it is a larger institute 
who is also probably suffering as well, you have a better chance, if that makes sense. If they have a little bit more financial support, they might provide a little bit more financial support. Right, right. That makes sense. I don't know. This whole film festival thing is something I'm just learning more and more about and trying to figure out how to navigate, you know? And so I think the more communication that you do is better. But I, I always write cover letters. Do you write cover letters or do you just not write cover letters anymore because people don't read them? I don't write cover letters. I reach out to the programmers that I know. I'll send cold queries to the ones I don't. When I, I, it was a Sundance programmer who told me directly that he never reads them. I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, that's more time in my day. Like, that's really what I thought of it as. Like, I'm going to save some time. I guess what what is the hurt, though? If you're going to write an email to them anyways, why don't you just write, like, another version of that email in the cover letter and just covering both bases? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think there's any downside to that. It is time, though. I mean, but I, I guess now that I've been submitting, like, I just feel weird not writing a cover letter, so I just always do, you know? Just, just, just to do it. But anyways, I hope this answer is helpful for you, Jeanette. Um, you know, Liz is definitely the one to listen to. Don't listen to me. She's the one who has experience. <laughs> but if you want to be like Jeanette Bloom, uh, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to our email at podcast at com. Or if you really like the show, you can also be like Jeanette Bloom and leave us a review on iTunes, which she also did. I don't know which, what her username was. I was trying to find it. I couldn't find it. But thank you, Jeanette. And you can also do other things like go to our Patreon page if you really, really love the show. And you can uh, go to slash MMIH podcast and you can give us a dollar, five dollars or nine dollars. And you can get one of our brand new enamel pins, which aren't so brand new anymore, or our stickers, which also aren't so brand new anymore, but they're also very cool. And lastly, you should just make sure to jump over to our Instagram page, give us a follow, hit the link in the bio, go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel and you can watch Liz look at her desk and you can watch me do things like this. And then uh, she's got notes, great, amazing. But I think without further ado, it's time to uh, get shorty. Get shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. So this week we have Adrian Powers from Australia on the show to talk about his film Broga, and this is a really interesting one because I think he lobbied to be on the show as a as a full guest, and we were like, "Hey, check this out! Like, you have a short film, get shorty it, baby, or something." <laughs> <laughs> Whatever we said, <laughs> and I'm so glad that he agreed to do it. So thanks, Adrian. Hi guys, thank you so much for having me on the show and to have the opportunity to talk about my film. My name's Adrian Powers. I'm a filmmaker from Sydney, Australia, and the film I'm talking about today is called Brolga, which is a short 15-minute film, Australian-made film, post-apocalyptic science fiction film, but with a very kind of interesting, unique spin. And it's recently completed its, its kind of 18-month festival run, and now it's available online to stream for free on YouTube. And today I'm going to be answering some questions about it. So thanks again for the opportunity, and I'm really excited to answer these. So the first question is, why did you make a short versus any other medium? This project really started life as a short film project. It actually started life as a, as a film school project back in 2011, um, and it was always designed to be that way. 
and it was shelved for a few years by, by virtue of the fact that I had other projects that were demanding my attention and other jobs and I kind of couldn't devote enough attention to it. So it was shelved for a few years and then brought back out in 2018 when I was you know, inspired to finish it and really had a new take on how I could get it done. But even then, it was still always meant to be a short film. And using that format really kind of allowed me to demonstrate my vision and intention for the project without breaking the bank because, you know, it's not a cheap proposition to do anything in the genre space in order to create the authenticity of a world you're creating. And that was certainly true of this. Um, but we do have a feature treatment for what this would look like uh, as a feature film. And uh, it's pretty exciting. So the next question is why this story? And the answer to that is, is that ever since I was a, a child growing up in the 1990s in Sydney, Australia, I, you know, being made aware of the incredible injustices suffered by the indigenous populations and cultures of this country at the hands of uh, colonizers and the continued injustices that they experience today really affected me and became a very important social concern for me, even as a child. And growing up, I had always kind of envisioned in the back of my brain somehow, in some way, some day, telling some kind of a story uh, about uh, Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians coming together and in, 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 in a crisis situation or in a difficult situation, coming together and learning and listening and, and becoming stronger together from, from cooperating together. And so really kind of a reconciliatory uh, message. And many, many years later, when I was doing research, I came across uh, the paintings of the artist Michael Connolly. And it was really moving and inspiring to me in a particular work, the story, the his interpretation and his iteration of the Murawari legend of the Brolga Crane really moved and affected me and, and made me think. And I got in touch with Michael and explained to him that I had this idea forming about a kind of a post-apocalyptic story about you know, non-Indigenous and Indigenous characters who are thrust into this situation and they were forced to survive but managed to ultimately do so and, and, and make it a very kind of allegorical statement about culture and about Australian life in a way. And he was really inspired and excited by that and had phone calls and, and, and conversations. And But ultimately he was really supportive and thought it was a great idea and allowed us to incorporate the work and his, his paintings and his written stories and and um, and the the interpretations and the and the stories that have been passed on from his ancestors, and that was an incredible honor and treasure to be able to work with him in that way. The next question is, how did you come up with the funds? Um, and that's a multi-tiered answer. Uh, like I said initially, this film started as a film school project, and so in that instance, we were given a two thousand dollar budget for a five day shoot, um, and ultimately that that only ended up being a portion of the production because we only got certain pieces that we ultimately needed but that was $2000 budget but that was you know it's not when you factor in all the camera equipment and the lighting gear and all the stuff that we the lenses and you know the sound equipment everything we had access to it was probably closer to a 35 or $40,000 budget but uh not long after that the film which was still incomplete was shelved and then later when it was brought back and we decided to finish it and we're really dedicated towards finishing it I had to kind of self finance the initial kind of resumption of post-production uh, I was editing the film but you know investigating sound investigating color etc etc and then when we finally got into the midst of post-production with music and sound mix and sound design and grade and final delivery DCP etc we raised uh, $7,000 through an Indiegogo campaign and that was fantastic and really gratifying you know we we put out a request for 
$15,000, but Indiegogo allows you to keep everything you raise regardless of whether or not you meet your target and we met and we raised seven thousand dollars and so i fronted the rest out of my own pocket my own savings from having working on other films and working as an editor and you know working freelance in the film industry uh, but i was happy to do it and i was really honored and touched by the people that did contribute to it and i'm still so grateful to all those folks and they're credited at the end of the movie the next question is before making the short what did you think would happen to your career because of it and what did end up happening um, in this instance, you know, like I said, I, I've been lucky and really blessed to be able to work on a bunch of wonderful, great productions, feature, you know, feature films, TV shows, uh, some wonderful music videos and all sorts of great things. And, and I'm lucky enough to be able to, to sustain a career out of it. And so going into this, this, this film really was a, a labor of love. It was a, it was an artistic statement and a dream project of something that I'd always wanted to work on. Like I said, since I was a child. So this was not a film I was making as a career strategy or as a means of making money because we agreed to, you know, right off the bat, we agreed to make the film not for profit. It was never going to make a cent. And that was the intention. That was that was the right thing to do for the project. And uh, just being able to make this little film and put it out into the world and have people respond to it positively and and come back to me with positive feedback and say that they enjoyed it. That's all I ever wanted from it. And in that way, it's been perfectly satisfying and so the next question is now that it's out in the world what purpose does it serve i hope that uh people are moved by the film and that they understand the message and, and people do and that and that that makes me happy so many people have gotten in touch with me and spoken to me about what the film means to them and what they think it's about and the, the kind of reflection it caused in them you know and i don't and and you know that's that's the intention with a film like this it's it is it is a personal project with a statement to make and a, and a kind of allegorical message and you don't always get the opportunity to play in that kind of sandbox sometimes you you know with a short film or with any film you know sometimes you have to be really catering to an audience and you you know can't be too daring or experimental or you know just incredibly personal with what it is you want to say uh, and this was an opportunity to do something like that you know, so I hope it exists as a means of starting conversation and, and you know, causing some, some folks to think uh, and to draw some attention to some key cultural issues. And if it can cause people to consider those things and to stop and have conversations about that, then I think it's already served its purpose. The next question is, would you do anything differently story-wise with this short now that the film is out in the world? Um, in terms of the story, no. I don't think I would change anything truth be told it's actually one of the clearest and i think truest to the original intention of of virtually any of the films that i've made even though it is incredibly allegorical i think what it's saying is clear and the story does the job that i was hoping to achieve when we set out to do it if we ask about the filmmaking is there anything i would have changed uh, again given the nature of the production given the scope of the crew given the resources that we had Again, I don't think I would change anything. But, you know, if you're saying, oh, well, we're going to give you more money and a bigger budget and the opportunity to, you know, work on a larger scale, then, uh, you know, of course, one would do things differently if you didn't have to be doing it with a five-person crew. I'm really proud and just so incredibly grateful for all the work that everyone's put into it. So the sixth and final question is, the black and white look in the film is very striking. Was that the plan from the beginning? Was there anything specific you did in camera to get the stark, sharp contrast in the film? Great question. Truth be told, credit where credit's due. Initially, the film was not designed to be in black and white. It was only during production that 
Tim Tregoning, the DOP, suggested to me that we should do it in black and white. He leaned up next to me, next to the camera, and goes, you know, we should do this movie in black and white. And I said, no, what are you talking about? That, that's a gimmick. It's a film school thing. I don't want to do that. He's like, you should think about it. And then I did, and I started to think about, okay, well, there's actually some real potential with that, and it actually helps us achieve a bunch of things, and then we can maybe do a few other things by utilizing color in some moments. And so that just set off a whole wonderful avenue of creativity that hadn't even I hadn't even considered yet. I was the colorist on the film, and I'm really grateful that people have responded so well to the aesthetic of the film. It really is off the basis of Tim's incredible work as the DP, but experimenting with that grade and utilizing it to you know, tell a story about the world and to help with production value in many ways because it, add, it adds such a rich visual quality to the film. We didn't do anything in camera. There's nothing in camera that was done for that look. It was all shot for color, and then the black and white was done later, but... Again, really, that was the best possible outcome because it allowed us to do what we ultimately did with the film. And that has been commented on by so many people that I think ultimately the choice was 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 successful and the best one for the film. So thank you so much for asking me these questions and giving me the opportunity to talk about Brolga. It was really great to kind of discuss the film in this way and to go over these things. Just go onto YouTube or Vimeo and uh, just type in Brolga and... Uh, you should be able to find it immediately and we hope you enjoy the film and if you want to get in contact with me to discuss it or discuss kind of filmmaking in general you can reach me at adrian j powers on twitter or instagram thanks so much liz what did you think of broga i liked it i thought it was very contrasty black and white I don't love stories of damsels in distress and this felt like you know felt like one um I like that it was about the importance of storytelling, but I don't, I think the film was missing a central moment for the main character, which is like, how did he come around to caring about this girl? You know, in the beginning, he witnesses and lets a young woman get murdered. He didn't stand up for her. And at the end, he stands up for another young woman, but I never saw her impact him and make that change in character to make that believable. But I have to say it was stylized. It, he was a good performer. Um, it was beautiful. It was nice to see something from Australia. But I just wish more time was given to that character change. Did you feel the same way? That's interesting. I, I, just, I just love how you said, I liked it. And you really meant that you'd didn't really like it that much but that's good no um, no it's like i just this one thing i'm gonna fixate on no i um i get it i mean i feel like there wasn't a lot of depth in the story um and i think that's a really good point that you bring up like there is no reason the only reason why he helped her was because she basically left him no choice like she wouldn't leave him alone and he was in a situation where he was with her and if if he didn't stick up for her then he would also be in danger basically you know, because um, they would find his 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 cave that he loved so much. But uh, I think the things I really liked about it were that it was really quiet. There wasn't a lot of talking. You know, there was a voiceover, but it was minimal. Um, and I felt like it served the the piece uh, pretty well. And uh, I liked the contrast look a lot. Like I really thought that was interesting. That like, you know, and he they must have decided to shoot it black and white beforehand. Obviously, with the color and everything. But like, I think they really um, made it look very striking with the way that they had it so high contrast, you know, with the 
the bad guy is like so scary looking, you know, um, just with the way that, that he was shot. It was it was really cool. Yeah, I, I guess I agree with you. Like those those other characters, like the two women were just like just victims. And but um, not because she, the second woman stood up for herself, young woman stood up for herself. But then she gets treated like a little baby at the very end. And it's like she saved your life, man. Why are you pick, why are you cradling him, cradling her in your arms? Oh my gosh! See now I'm getting up in arms about this when I said I would didn't care. Well, I mean she would. Yeah, I guess she became the. You know, she she saved herself, but she was still a victim in the beginning. I mean, I guess the, the what I'm trying to say is they didn't really have a lot of depth to them. Yes, you know, 100%. I feel like the male characters were given more to do than the female characters, which is a problem that you know filmmakers have and had have had forever, and you know. Will continue to have, and it's something that I'm trying to work on and be better at in my own movies, you know. But yeah, no, and I, I thought the, I just thought the storytelling was good, and I liked the visual look, and uh, I thought like the performances were good, you know, that they were convincing. So that was those are the things I liked about it. It's it's really we like movies that have characters that are motivated more than by um, there is no other choice or by because they aren't they aren't given an, an answer and i mean maybe you could say oh he wanted to help the first woman but he was too scared and then he got his courage but it's like but how did he get his courage like i didn't see a moment in between i want to say something really positive i do believe this is that if you were to just watch this as a studio executive or an agent whoever it is you would say wow this is a really interesting style this is different like it's really beautiful it's super stylized like there's a lot to be said that's positive about this i'm just getting into the nitty-gritty because it's the thing i want to talk about i wonder what a studio executive would say to this movie like i wonder if they would really appreciate the black and white and the color contrasts and and the things that happen with like bringing the color into the, the paintings and at the very end or if they would be like oh it's black and white post-apocalyptic movie who cares i've seen a thousand of these it isn't like a, a something that's brand new like we've seen post-apocalyptic at least i've seen post-apocalyptic black and white shorts before you know um i but, have not yeah this is my first one you have not oh it's your first uh i guess i don't know when i was going to film festivals was was strange thing there was a there was at least one that was like that um but it's cool you know i definitely i definitely like it and i mean i think what's important is adrian powers you made a cool movie. Congratulations. I'm interested to hear what he has to say about it and like what his motivations were. I mean, he was definitely inspired by like, you know, Mad Max and a bunch of other of these, um, you know, post-apocalyptic type movies. But um, I wanted to bring up something else. Actually, I have more time so we can talk a little longer. Oh, phew. Did you watch uh, the last week's Get Shorty with uh, uh, Travis White and Madison Phillips? No, still no. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> Those guys are hilarious. Like if if you if you're listening to this and you didn't you just listen to the episode and you didn't watch it, you have to go back and watch it because what they did was so insane. And they they did these gags, these jokes that I couldn't leave in the edit because they're only visual jokes and they wouldn't work in the in the the main format of the podcast. So they had to be cut, unfortunately. But yeah. There's a couple things in there that are just too funny. They have posters. They have a poster of me behind them, but it looks like they photoshopped two photos of me together, and like one from college. It's a little bit of an embarrassing photo. <laughs> it's really nuts. And they and they have a photo of you of your movie Bread and Butter on the other side. <laughs> so there's like two. It's like Alric oh, and Liz behind, and shit. and they're like you know talk about how they're big friends of the show and. 
it's just really charming. And then there was like, there's a moment I have to explain this. So what they did in the thing was uh, they're answering the questions and then like a phone rings and like Travis is like, oh, excuse me. Um, you know, I've got to go. And then uh, he gets up and then he's like not wearing any pants. He's wearing like a yellow like Speedo. And then Madison holds up a, a little piece of paper that says help me on it. And she doesn't say anything. She's just like like a little tune thing. Oh, and then she puts it away and he, he, he comes back. And it's like, that was hilarious, but it couldn't be in the show because it didn't make any sense. But I was like watching it on my computer, just laughing my ass off. Like these guys are so crazy. It's a trip. So you should definitely watch the uncut version when you can, Liz, because it is hilarious. I listen to our shows like usually a day or two after they come out when I'm on a hike. And then I'm just like listening and then just like rolling my eyes at my own comments as I'm walking on this like (laughs) mountain. Um, So I actually am really looking forward to hearing Madison and Travis on my hike probably tomorrow morning. They also just have a great story about themselves as filmmakers. Like they, they talk about being at the Austin Film Festival watching short films and then being like, hey, why don't we do this? Like we could do this. And then they go out and they make their first movie. And it's like. And that was what we, that was the movie that we saw. And so it was, it's just a really charming story. And now they're going to make their first feature uh, in the summer. And it's just like, these guys, they, they got it, they got it figured out. So it's pretty cool. But I think enough talk, enough chat. It's time to go to our conversation with Averill. Averill, hi, we adore you. Let's start talking about Hosea. Um, how many days did you shoot Hosea? 16. And uh, what was the rough budget, if you can say? It was around $750,000. $750, How long did you spend working on the film from being brought on to its release? Uh, I think it was about, until it's released, about, about three years, I guess. Yeah. And then how big was your crew? I don't know. I don't remember. 50 people, maybe? No, that was, I don't think it was that big. I don't think it was as big as 50. Maybe like 40, maybe 30, 40. I don't know. I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Feels so long ago. That was like like pre-pandemic life. Oh, then, yeah, you should have blocked it out by then, you know, by now. Like, it doesn't matter if it's before 2020. Well, this one you will remember. You could answer this one. Compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? This one was breeze compared to the other ones. So tell, tell us about Hosea and why it was a breeze. Well, well, because if we had we had money, I mean, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars is not a ton of money, but um, it's enough money that like you have money to, to do things. I've done a lot of films on like shoestring budgets, and you know, if something goes wrong, you just you're just like, eh. <laughs> and, you know, and then people aren't getting paid, and so you could have people just like. Like, oh, I can't come today. And what are you going to do? <laughs> but it's like when you have money, you can pay people and they show up to work. And when things happen, you know, as they tend to happen in filmmaking, you know, bathrooms overflow, <laughs> overflow, <laughs> or whatever, you know, things happen. And to be able to be like, okay, well, then let's bring in the so-and-so who can clean up this mess or something. You know what I mean? Like you can actually have some money to solve problems. I mean, obviously it's better to have even more of a budget, but like seven, 750, I feel like is a, is a sweet spot. You know, it's like people always talk about quality time or money and it's like, 
we didn't have time like we to shoot a feature in 16 days was um with that many locations we had 16 locations and that was cut down i think we had way more than that and we had to cut it down so it just wasn't a ton of time to do everything that we had to do but we had money like we had a great crew everybody got along we were shooting in oklahoma oklahoma has great restaurants the weather wasn't didn't make it easy but um you said in comparison to other projects so comparison to the other ones this was probably the easiest one and, and how many pages was it that you shot in 16 days i think we shot 90 i think it was 90 pages 89 so it's somewhere between like 80 80 something and 90. that's like reasonable you know it's not like insane like 120 or 110 or something yeah no no we didn't have that we it was definitely somewhere in the 90 range if i remember correctly um so april you and i know each other fairly well and we've been on a few panels together i think so i've heard some of these stories so apologies for making you tell me something more than once um, but you've had a few careers right before coming to film producing could you talk a little bit about your transition from educator and I think you also worked in the faith space tell us about the trajectory of you yeah I've had many I feel like I've had many lives um I I guess I say I started out as a director was really where it started because when I went to film school, I went to film school um, as a directing concentrate. And so that was my um, focus at the time was directing. And when I graduated from film school, that was kind of the focus, but it's like, it's really difficult. You can't really get a job as a director, like a paid job, especially fresh out of film school. It's not like you can look in the paper and be like, hire me as a, as a movie director. And um, I was like a freelance videographer. And so I would shoot all of these like wedding videos and, and just anything, birthdays, weddings, <laughs> family reunions. <laughs> I was like filming everything and I had my own camera and I would shoot and edit and people would pay me to do that. And that's kind of how I was making my living. And it was really hard. <laughs> it was really a pain. It was a real pain. And I got tired of it. I got tired of it. And like, I spent two years doing that and, you know, trying to, trying to make ends meet. And so finally I was just like, you know, I think I need a change. I think I need a change in scenery, a change in pace. And I moved to Atlanta. And so when I moved to Atlanta, I got uh, offered a job teaching. And so that, that was really, I just, I just kind of like fell into it. I started teaching at a university in Atlanta and it was like, oh, this is great because I can teach full time and have the flexibility to still keep working on my own projects on the side. So it was a pretty sweet gig because I literally, I was quite considered full time. I got benefits, I got a you know weekly paycheck, all of that stuff. So when I first started out, there was no expectation except for me to teach my class. And so it was like, great, like I'll do my, hour, hour and a half, two hour class. And then I can go work on other stuff. So that worked for a few years. So I was in Atlanta, I was teaching, I was making films. I was an independent filmmaker that had to do everything on my own. So I was like a director, but I was also a producer, 
writer, editor, in some cases, you know, cinematographer. So I knew how to do it all. So it's like, if somebody's gonna hire me to do that, then fine, I'll do it. In undergrad, I took film classes at Howard University. I went to, I went to University of Maryland, College Park. And, um, but I took my production classes at Howard. And so one of those Howard professors, she was on sabbatical in Atlanta and was like, oh, I need an editor for my doc. And I was like, okay, great. So I edited her documentary and then she's like, okay, now we have, she's, you know, she, she finished her sabbatical and she went back to Howard. And when she got back, one of the other professors suddenly went on sabbatical because he got a TV series like in the Caribbean somewhere. And he was like off to Barbados or something. And they're like, oh, all of a sudden we need a, a professor here at Howard in DC. So, you know, she put me up for that job. So it happened very quickly where I just moved to DC and um, started teaching there. And so right around that time was when I started thinking like, maybe I should think about getting a PhD. And then what happened was I got to DC and I was like, oh, I hate it here. Like, I don't want to live here. And so then it became, I have to figure out like, what am I going to do? What's the next phase of my life? Like if I'm not, if I'm not staying in DC, then where else am I going to go? And I, I couldn't really think of where else I would want to live. I also, if I'm like, if I'm going to get a PhD, what am I going to study? Because I, you know, I like teaching film, but there is no PhD in film. Well, in production, right? You would have to in do studies. Like to do studies or something like that. And I'm like, kind of like, that's not the same and not really what I want to do. And so I just asked myself the question. I was like, well, what else am I, you know, what are, where are my interests? Like, what are kind of like things that I get excited about? And I was like, the only thing that I would be interested in going to, going back to school for like eight more years to study would be, um, would be film and it would be like religion or something like that. Because I'm really interested in um, religion and theology. It's, it's something, you know, I grew up in the church and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, kind of went my own path once I got to college and then kind of came back after college. And, you know, so it's been kind of on again, off again. But I hit a point like in my thirties, I think, where I just, I was like, I have a lot of questions for myself, like in terms of what I read in the Bible and how things are interpreted versus how I interpret them. Like sometimes they don't always gel. <laughs> they don't always go inside. And so I'm just like really um, interested in that and like fascinated by that. And I'm interested in like seeing what are some ways that I could, um, you know, fuse those two things together. So I found this program that was, um, it was the theology and film program. And so I was like, oh, that sounds perfect because it's the two things that I want to talk about and that I want to um, learn about. So yeah, that's what brought me to LA. And um, so, you know, when, and I'll be honest, like when I moved out here, I was kind of in a place where, like I said, I started out as a director and when I graduated from film school, I had two feature films. So like I had two feature films under my belt. You know, I had done some, done some shorts, you know, I was freelancing for a while. So I had been doing this for a long time. You know, this is you looking at like 20 years, 15, 20 years at that point that I had been a filmmaker. And, you know, you just start asking yourself questions like, is this really what I want to be doing? And is this the best way to go about it? 
And so when I moved out to LA to go to school, I kind of um, just put everything on the shelf and was like, I'm just going to take um, a couple of years and just kind of live in the moment and experience where I am right now and see what happens later. And I may not, I may or I may not come back to film. And it was interesting because it, like, I feel like those two years were probably the most formative years of my life because I think I put aside all expectations. Um, and I just like, was like, I'm gonna be in a position where I just wanna learn and I wanna learn to like think for myself. <laughs> And, you know, not just in terms of like religion and the Bible, but just in general, in terms of like humanity and like life in general. And that's what it did. It just like gave me a greater understanding for who we are as human beings and like how we relate to each other in the world. I, I remember having a meeting with an advisor once. And like, I think when I, when I first came into the program, I was like, I don't know about film. She's a filmmaker as well. Um, like a mentor of mine and um, you know she's like an indie filmmaker and I've always had this this you know coming from New Jersey I'm from New Jersey and New York I went to the film school in New York and I've always had this like mentality of like screw the system screw Hollywood like I'm independent I'm doing this myself uh, you know stick it to the man like that's always been my kind of like attitude about it and so I came out here and I was like, well, I don't know what to do because I don't want to be Hollywood. Like, I'm in LA, but I don't want to be Hollywood. Like, I'm just like real. And she was just like, you know what? Just take that. Let's, let's just take that and let's just put that over here. Because <laughs> you just don't know what's going to like this. Just put that over here. Enjoy where you are in this moment. Like, just be here. And that's what I did for two years. And so I didn't really make movies for two years. Like, I didn't make anything. And then, so at the end of that program, it literally came down to like, you know what, after two years, I was like, you know, I still have stories that I want to tell. Like I have stories inside of me. Like, I don't want to give this up. I can't give this up. I can't give up filmmaking just yet. So I'm getting back in the game. And I think that was around the time when, oh, well, I had met Najla and I, I, I ended up doing a web series for my pieces. And um, so I had helped her on a project and then she she like was like a PA on my web series. And we were like, Who, who's that girl, Najla? <laughs> she was so helpful, <laughs> so great to have her. So at any rate, it's like once I finished that program, Najla and I started working together more. Like she, she was like, hey, I have this short. Do you want a production manage? I was like, okay, sure. Like I said, I was just getting back into production, into the production world. So I did the short, that short was Dream. And, you know, we entered it, it got into some film festivals. It, it did very well. And then um, she was like, I have this feature. Are you interested in producing it? And I was like, no, because <laughs> I'm a director. I don't, like I did the production managed thing and I actually kind of liked it, but you know, let's not get crazy here. Like. <laughs> I'm a director, like, I don't really listen. I was still kind of hanging on to this thing about teaching full-time, like, you know, of like getting back to a point where I could do it the way I was doing it before, where, where I was teaching full-time and, and able to still work on my own thing. So I was, I was like still wanting that. So both of the schools where I was adjuncting, they both had a full-time position open up. 
the same at the same time. And I applied to both of them. And, um, you know, one of them I got through the whole interview process, like met the dean, met the provost, met the everybody. They called all my references. My references started calling me and were like, yeah, they called us. They love you. You're great. Like you're a shoe in. Well, then at the last minute they called and like, oh, we decided to go with someone else. So I didn't get the job. And then the second school, the other school where I applied, they emailed me a very sexist, well, I won't go into that, email that just said, uh, I didn't get that job. And I was just like, I was devastated because I was so convinced that I was gonna get one of these jobs and neither one of them came, came to fruition. And so I got in my car as I tend to do when I'm upset. Um, I love to drive and like listen to music and sing badly. <laughs> this, this might sound crazy. I remember this story from um, Steve Harvey. <laughs> he told this story about how um, he kept telling his mother that he was gonna get a new car. And his mother kept saying, yeah, but your old car is on bricks outside. And he was like, okay, mom, okay, mom, okay, mom. Like, I'm gonna get a new car. And she was like, okay, but your old car is on bricks outside. And he would be like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, why do you keep saying that? And so finally she said to him, you keep saying you're gonna get a new car, but you're literally, your old car is still sitting in the driveway with bricks under it. Like you're not driving it, it's just sitting in the driveway with bricks. How are, you, how are you gonna bring in new things if you keep holding on to the old things was like the moral of the story. And I was just like, what in my life am I holding on to? And what can I let go of? And I was like, yeah, this whole, I'm gonna teach full time and have this life where I'm like teaching full time, like that, the way it used to be. And I think I may still be holding on to that. I literally came home and just like threw out all of my teaching stuff. Like I just threw it out. I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. Like I said, at that point I had, you know, not too long graduated and was like, I still have stories to tell. I'm going to do this and I'm in LA and I'm gonna, you know, take advantage of that and go back into production. I'm just gonna pursue production. I don't know how this is gonna pan out because I'm jobless right now, but this is what I'm gonna do. And um, that was right around the time when Nigela had asked me to produce Jen. And I think at the time when I made that decision to not go back into the classroom, we got into Fast Track for Film Independent. So that happened. And then um, a couple of weeks later, I got a, a job at BET. It was a very like, it was kind of like an entry level job, but I was like, it's a job and it gets me into, product, into the production world and I can meet some people. And also I hadn't worked in um, television in a long time. I think, you know, I was like an intern at a TV station back when I was in college. So like I hadn't worked in television since then. So it's like, okay, I'll take this job and I'll take it and I'll learn and I'll make something of it. And then literally like the, I was on a TV show right around the time when we were getting ready to go into production on Jen. And um, that, that show ended up, um, it got canceled. And then it, it, the timing of it couldn't have been better though, because the show got canceled. And then like, we went into production like the next week. And 
we shot Jin and I remember just feeling like, yeah, this is it. And I remember the day after we wrapped, um, I was sitting on my, sitting in the, on my living room floor going, that was amazing. I need another movie. I want another movie and I want another movie right now. <laughs> Which is crazy because like, you know, usually, and especially I can say as a director, I tend to, after I shoot something, I kind of go into this funk of like, when I did my feature, for example, I went into this like depressive state for like, I want to say years. It was like a couple years that I was just like, am I any good? And like, you know, what is life? It was just like this spiral of, you know, did what I just make, did it, is it good? Does it mean anything? What is this, blah, blah, blah. Like a lot of self-doubt. But with Jen, when we finished shooting, I was like, <laughs> like a feed. I was like, I want to, I need another project. And not long after that was when I got Hosea. And so it's like the ball just kind of started rolling and I just started getting more offers to produce more projects. And five years later, you're in as a producer. So after Jin, were there any of those feelings about like wanting to be a director or like, oh, I, if I do this again, like I should be directing it or were those kind of feelings all kind of gone at that moment? You're like, you saw the value and the joy of producing. I think now, like meaning like in the last six months to a year, it's like, oh, maybe I want to direct again. But I even second guess that. It's not even, I don't, I don't really feel the like, I'm bur- I have this burning desire to direct. Like, <laughs> I don't really have that anymore. I don't believe you. Um, but I, and maybe we could talk about that because, by the way, you're a wonderful producer. I, I've never seen you on set, but just judging by you and your character and and the way, you know, the stuff that we've talked about, I already know that you're a wonderful producer because you're supporting the artistic vision of the project and you're a hard worker. But going back to what you said about the self-doubt, you don't have that self-doubt unless you really care about something you you know what thank you for not believing me thank you for calling me out on bullshit (laughs) it's so you're you're right it's not that i don't want to direct again you are you're you are exactly right it's not that i don't want to direct again it's that i really have those fears and i think every director has them where you're just like can i do this i don't know you know and if I'm being completely honest, I think that, and this is, I'm, this, this is like, okay, therapy, April's therapy in <laughs> one-on-one. <laughs> therapy. Because the reality is, this is something that I've been talking about a lot with my life coach and with my therapist as well, in terms of like my own head trips with directing. And I do think that in some regards, producing is, easier because I get to be a part of it, but at a distance. One of the reasons why I love producing with, with Nigela, for example, is that she's such a brilliant director and has like such a great eye there. Like I trust that what she shoots, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. Like we just did a short together and it's like, you know, when you read it on the page, it's one thing, but when you see it on the screen, when you see it, it's like, oh, that's beautiful. And so I wrestle with 
having that same confidence in myself of, you know, trusting myself to like make something that is beautiful and that's meaningful. I've made two features. I've made, you know, some shorts and I've done a web series and it's always that like where I'm asking myself, like, is this enough, you know? And um, how do I get better? You know, so I think one of the reasons why I did kind of lean into into producing was that being a multi-hyphenate, you know, now they call it a multi-hyphenate. I don't think I've ever given myself the space or the permission to like do one thing and to do it well. So it's like, I'm skip, I'm like, direct, you know, I direct this thing and then I'm editing over here and then I'm doing this and doing that. And it's like, I think it does take time to like to hone a craft and to and to to be good at it. And so after Jen, part of that, let me dive into producing was like, I want to do like, I did enjoy this experience and I want to do it again. And I want to do it. I want to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it so that I really understand the process. And I even said, eventually I'll come back to directing. And I'll come back to directing, seeing it through different eyes. You know what I mean? After having produced, and and honestly, like being a producer has almost been like the best film school. (laughs) To be able to sit with some really great directors and see like, okay, that's their process. And no, that's different from this director to see how, like, that's how they, oh, that's that's an interesting technique. Like, you know, try that. Can I, I I do want to ask, call myself out here because I called you out because I feel the exact same way on set I have a lot of doubt a lot of fear and I hate being on set because I always think I'm making the wrong decision or saying the wrong thing and I think there's a lot of pressure and it's very scary I think I keep on making films as a director because I think I'm a masochist and I think I'm attracted to bad decisions <laughs> and um, doing things that I do not enjoy. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that I saw how I feel in your response, which is why I thought I could call you out in that very <laughs> brash way. <laughs> but I also want to acknowledge that producing is creative and you're making creative decisions a lot of people don't give producers that kind of credit would you be willing to briefly speak to moments where you've had that creative fulfillment as a producer yeah I mean I can think of examples where just being able to have like a a a say in and it can be anything from like a shot or to like cast, like who we cast, you know, it's a, um, it's a very like creative part of the process and of the job of a producer. One of the films that I'm working on now, I remember when we were, we were casting and, you know, it's just having conversation, you know, there's this one kind of like sidekick role. And I remember being, you know, it kind of being between these two people and being like, no, it's gotta be this guy. (laughs) You need to have this guy because, you know, A, from a sales perspective, like more people are going to know his name than they're going to know the other guy's name. But also beyond that, he's funny. He's funny as all get out and people are going to relate to him. They're going to, they're going to like, he's going to be a draw for the film. And sure enough, we cast this man and people love him. 
They love him. And the director is always like, you know, you, you know, you called it. Thanks for, for bringing that out. But like, yeah, I think you're, you're right. There is um, a creative element to the process. I think that, um, you know, there's, there's another, a couple of films that I'm helping on the, on the, like just kind of as a like advisor kind of kind of thing or I guess EP type, you know, we looked at these cuts and giving notes on the cut. If you're writing and directing a project, sometimes you're so attached to it that it's hard to see sometimes like the bigger picture and then to be able to not just see the bigger picture, but then also think about like the marketplace as well is like a plus for the producer. But I think for me, like I know that there's the business but I'm such a stickler for like, what is the story that you're trying to tell? You know, and like, how do we make that story better? So I have a, a more technical question. Um, like after you finished Jen, did you have to go back and get another day job or were you able to just provide for yourself off of producing features at that point? After I finished Jen, I went back to BET. I started working at BET again and uh, I was I worked as a as a coordinator. Then I got promoted to a manager, production production manager. And so I worked at BET until we went into production for Hosea. And so we shot Hosea in Oklahoma. So I had to leave to go go shoot Hosea. And um, when I came back from Oklahoma. My intention was to go back to BT, but at that point I was kind of like, like while I was in production on Hosea, I got an offer for another film. So I was like, I already have stuff kind of balls, balls in motion. I was very fortunate when I worked at BT because they knew that I was like pursuing producing on the side. So I was, they were kind of flexible with me um, to even allow me to go to Oklahoma and film. And so, but when I, when I came back, you know, they were kind of like, well, yeah, we'd love to have you back. But if you come back, like you, you need to stay. <laughs> we can't have all this back and forth business going on. And I just, had, again, was faced with another crossroads and made the decision to not go back and to just um, believe that the producing would work out. So that was my last full-time job. I mean, I, I've done, like I worked for Film Independent for a while but that was like for a specific program that, you know, started and ended at a certain time. But that's kind of how I pieced together things in between projects has been um, doing contract work. And ironically, in education, it's been, you know, it's been like doing these programs, it's been teaching classes, doing workshops. My, my teaching background has kind of come full circle. And that's what helps me sustain myself is to be able to to work on those things in between um, while I'm waiting for projects to take off. Well, let's talk more about money though, right? So are you now at the point where you're demanding a, some, a stipend or a day rate or were you like that in the beginning? I mean, I know that some projects you've worked on, you mentioned were in, in the micro budget space, so it's hard to kind of make room. And producers have been traditionally short shrifted when it comes to being paid, let's just say that out loud for the umpteenth time. Are you demanding, rightfully demanding a fee for the work that you're doing? Yeah, so um, I'm asking for a fee. Yeah, and I mean, even with that, like I'm learning what that looks like, what that means, what to ask for. Like I just finally got a lawyer that 
kind of helps me with that. And I'm very thankful for him because he's pushes like for me to get my fee and to keep my fee. And I don't know that I would have been able to sustain myself without him advocating for that. So now I do have a, um, a producer fee that I come with. <laughs> Even saying that I'm like, I want to keep talking about money, not not just about your personal money, Avril, because I know you just said you were uncomfortable. Um, but but financing, do you feel like that's your responsibility as a producer, or do you enjoy helping finance a production? <laughs> For the folks at home, she is shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> I hate financing. Like the, if I were going to quit producing over one thing, it would be that. And probably distribution as well, which you and have had. We do a whole show on that. <laughs> in terms of like projects in the past, that has been one of my jobs has been to, to, to find financing. But now because I'm trying to do projects that are larger budget, I'm like, I don't really have the, um, the cachet to raise millions upon millions of dollars, you know? And so that becomes like, I have to bring in a producing partner or, you know, bring in someone who has those relationships and has those connections to, to be able to do that. And then I can focus more on the creative, creative end. I do it when I have to, that's not something that I'd like to do, prefer to do. Um, <laughs> depending on the budget level, I'm probably not the best person <laughs> depending on how much money needs to be raised so it's it sounds like a lot of your movies like you basically get offered the job like they, someone reaches out to you and they're like hey we want to hire you to produce this movie and then they pay you and you go and produce the movie but do you sometimes like you know get a script and then start from scratch and like you find a producing partner and raise the money and like what's the process like well and i, and I guess i should clarify like yeah in terms of me being able to sustain myself as a producer, like I'm only able to do that because I've been a producer for hire on these other projects. And so that's where I have, you know, like the lawyer will negotiate the fees and all that kind of stuff where they're just bringing me on to produce. But yeah, I do have projects where I'm kind of, you know, more from the ground up where it's like, I'm not making anything from it right now. You know, I'm having to find the money, find, find the partners or what have you. Like, you know, Nigel and I have another project. We're trying to do her second feature and it's, it's the same thing. It's just like with Jen where we've got a script and now we have, we're starting from scratch of having to find money for it, support for it, find casts, like all of that we're having to build from the ground up. So, um, so yeah, I have a couple of films that are like that and then, you know, I often try to kind of find those like more producer for hire type type gigs where I can just step on and and you know get a fee for producing more hands on. So um, you know, let's say it's a project that comes to you like you know with a director and a new script or something, and it's not one of those work for hire situations. What makes you want to work with a director? Like, is there something that they may do or say that would like get you excited is it purely the script like what what gets you interested in, in doing that kind of partnership with somebody so i love stories like i love good stories and i think um you know my problem is that 
I want to work with everybody. Like I want to help everybody. And so like, I'll read a story and be like, that sounds great. Like, I love it. Let's work together. <laughs> and then, you know, I got to this point, like, I, like last year I started out with like 15 projects on my slate. And it was like, April, what are you doing? You are one person. <laughs> you can't produce 15 movies. Like this is too much. And, you know, and it was always like, well, they're all at different stages, you know, but it takes so much work and there's no way you can, there's not even enough hours in the day for you to devote enough time to 15 projects to really get them off the ground to see the light of day. So I'm in this process now of trying to be more selective. So it, that's why I say it's kind of hard to answer your question because like, I'm, I'm really trying to um, be more strict about that now and um, kind of stick to where my own interests lie. And I think I'm really interested in, um, well, and see here's the, like I said, I'm still in this process, but like the other thing that makes it difficult too is that I'm really attracted to like indie dramas. Like I love, <laughs> Drama, like drama. The hardest thing to sell ever, indie drama. I do get, I get, you know, emails from people who are like, oh, do you have this? Like, do you have this in your slate? And I'm like, no. It was like a couple weeks ago, somebody was like, hey, do you have any comedies? Like I, comedies in the sub, uh, I forget what was the budget range. But it sounded like he was like ready to go. Like he had a fine, like he had money and was like, you got a comedy? And I was like, no, I don't. They're all sad indie dramas. <laughs> You're going to get like 35 emails the day after this is released. <laughs> I know. I know it. <laughs> I'm like, well, right now I have none. So just like, <laughs> that might be a good thing. But yeah, I just, I gravitate toward like indie dramas. I love stories about families, especially like dysfunctional, dysfunctional families. Like I love it. Like I eat it up. Um, stories about love, about women, um, particularly about Black women, stories about spirituality. I mean, that's why I love Jin so much. Like, you know, stories that delve into the complexities of like people's faith and what they believe and their spirituality and stuff is interest of interest to me. So those are the types of stories. But like, like I said, in terms of genre, they're like all drama. And so I have to be you know, a little bit more selective in terms of, I need to, I'm trying to mix up my slate a little bit. So it's not all anything. <laughs> so April, um, I mean, we met at IFP, you were talking about film independent fast track. By the way, we didn't even mention that Jen won an award at South by and I mean, I think I attribute a lot of success to, to, to that promotion, that amplification of the film, obviously, and its quality and, and all the work you did on it. As someone who still wants to direct, is working with directors, what do you attribute the success of a director's career to? Is it these festivals? Is it these film support organizations? Was it, you know, Nigel is on like a fast moving train with her career. I mean, I'm hearing about it a lot. So I'm just wondering, witnessing the careers that you're witnessing, what do you think are the keys to leveraging your career to be more powerful? I definitely do think that um, 
festivals help organizations like lab, you know the labs and film independent and um ifp all those definitely help i i think that those those programs help get your name out there but i think in, in to your question in terms of like where you start to take off taking advantage of the moment you know it's like those programs help you get to a certain point like you know, we, we couldn't have made Jen without Sundance, Film Independent, I like with all of those, all of those organizations, we could not have made that movie without those organizations. Those were like the stepping stones for us. But like, once we got to South by at that point, then it's about taking advantage of the moment. And it's, you know, when she won that award was very helpful, but when she did South by Southwest, you know, she got the offer Once from... you two did South by Southwest, you both got the offer for distribution. Thank you again for... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, when we went to South by Southwest um, and, you know, the won the award and then Ava DuVernay called her to direct Queen Sugar. And so it's kind of like you, you know, she got an agent and then so it's kind of like she kind of got on that TV track. For me, I would say it's similar in the sense of like taking advantage of the moment for a producer just means like taking all the meetings. Like, yeah, when people email say, oh, congratulations on winning South, you know, the award at South by Southwest or getting into South by Southwest, it's like, thanks, let's get coffee. <laughs> it's like, you know, asking everybody out for coffee. And so, so for a producer, taking advantage of the moment is just like, also keeping those relationships with um, those organizations that helped us get there because the, those are the people that are going to be advocates for you and introducing you to other people and you know if you need a connection or what or what have you they're the ones that are doing that three no maybe all of the jobs that I've gotten out after Jen have been because somebody at one of those organizations recommended me to somebody or made an introduction to somebody. So, you know, it's like, as producers, we're always saying like, if a film becomes a success and if it's like a first time director, the, the director is gonna get the agent, they're gonna get like the next project or they'll get the TV, like that's always, you know, the, the talk as producers is that the director usually ends up, you know, is usually the one to kind of benefit off of the success of the film. And so, yeah, like most times we don't get agents. Producers don't get agents out of that. Um, so since I don't have agents, you know, but I do have friends at Film Independent, IFP, Sundance, or what have you, that I can ask for help and ask for support. So when I do need intros or I need, you know, certain things, it's not the same as having an agent, but it does help. It helps a lot. Well, there's like 1 million more questions to ask you. We didn't talk about distribution or anything, but we're already over an hour. So I think we have to get to our last five questions. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? You mean like the first film ever, ever? Or like the first feature or the first... First ever, ever. For, it could be a short, could be a feature, could be whatever you want to talk about. The first film ever, ever. I mean, the first film ever, ever was, um, was I guess a film I made in, in school, like in undergrad. And it was, and 
you know, some people don't count those as films, but I count it because it was like such an, it was like, ah, this is what I want to do with my life. It was such a terrible film. I'm, I'm always afraid that one day I'm going to like go on YouTube and somebody's going to be like, we found. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But it was, it was really awful. You know, I took my film classes at Howard and we were, we were cutting, we were cutting on steam back. So like I cut that thing, I spliced that thing. Wow. <laughs> it's so bad. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? My goal is to produce and direct a film and television. I, you know, I think, yeah, that, that is something because I don't, I don't, at least not at this point in my life and in my career, I don't want to give up producing in order to direct. But I do want to do both. It used to be that I want to sustain myself. Like, I just want to just like, I just want to make it. I just want to get by. But I don't think I just want to make it anymore. I want to make money. I want to make, I want to like pay off my student loans. Also, I used to be like, I'm never retiring. I'm done till I die. Like, and no, I want to retire. <laughs> That's one thing that pandemic has taught me is that it's nice to sit at home <laughs> and watch TV. I want to do that. I want that life. My parents are retired and they're, they're like, I feel like they're living the dream. So yes, maybe that's my goal. My goal is to retire. So if I can make, if I can get some TV series under my belt, so I can put that away and invest it and retire one day off of my, there you go. That sums it up. To retire as a filmmaker. Cause I want this, for this job to be able to sustain me in retirement. I like that. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Mm, so many things. Trust yourself. That would be my advice. I feel like I wasted a lot of years and made, I made some wrong turns in my life and in my path. And maybe I shouldn't say wrong turns because I do feel like, you know, paths lead where they're supposed to, but I made some decisions listening to other people rather than trusting myself and, and trusting what I know to be true and trusting what I know is good for me. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is that you listen to other people and they're giving you advice and it's not, there's nothing against them. They're trying to help, but it's like, nobody knows your path as well as you, like, you know, where you're trying to end up and what you're trying to do. And so my advice to myself would be, that's what I would do would be to trust myself and trust what I'm trying to do. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Okay, so I don't know if this, this, here's some good advice that my mentor gave me. Well, when I graduated from that program, I was trying to figure out, should I move back to Atlanta? Should I stay in LA? Can I afford LA? Now that I have no job, <laughs> how will I be able to sustain myself? And she said, be, be safe and comfortable in your living so that you can be violent and passionate in your work. And that was the best advice. I, I like, that was worth waiting for, April. That was really <laughs> wonderful. 
I like now I'm like taking that in and using it for my own next 10 years. So, don't have another kid, Liz. All right, moving on to question number five. April, is making movies hard? Oh my God, it is so hard. It is so hard. It is not for the faint at heart. You know, I'll say that for anybody who's listening, if you think, you know, you can just dip in and dip out, it's, it's, no. I'll just say this, you know, I do panels a lot where, you know, I do, with the Q and A's and you have people that say, you know, you'll get questions like, well, how do I find financiers? How do I find funding? Just tell us how we find, and, and it's like, there is no database for any of this. There's no database for investors. There's no database for, you know, the closest thing we have is that article you wrote, Liz, on distrib distributors. Thank you very much. And I'm writing a sequel. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, wonderful. That's the closest thing we have. There's no database for this. If that's what you're looking for, then you're not built for this. You just, you, that's just not how it works. There's no database. There's no um, blueprint for how to get ahead, how to make it. You know, everybody, how do you make it in the business? I don't know. Half of the people in the business are still trying to figure it out themselves. I've had conversations with Oscar winning producers who were like, I don't know. <laughs> None of us know what we're doing. <laughs> Nobody knows. And I, yeah, it's hard. It's hard for everybody. Everybody in this business, it's hard for all of us. So if, embrace it <laughs> or don't do it. <laughs> the best answer I've heard on this podcast in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's really, really good. <laughs> so if people want to find you, um, April, where, where are you, can you be found? Do you have a website? Where should people go? Yes, I am at As You Speak on Everything. That's A-Z-U-S-P-E-A-K. That is my website. That's my uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Gmail. Everything is as you speak. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks to April Speaks for making this episode happen. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I am Liz Menachel on Twitter. Uh, far closer to 2K followers, but that's because a friend created eight fictional accounts and then followed me. Um, Liz Manishal Film on Instagram. Alark, where are you? I am Alark B on Twitter. I'm not near 2,000 followers. And also Alark B on Instagram. <laughs> Please, if you like the show, tell a friend. Help us get the word out. Leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, thanks to Carly for doing all the editing. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. Is a haggis a part of the body? Well, like, I'm just saying... <laughs> It's not just a food, right? It's a part of the body of the pig or whatever. That's like. Okay.